This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 90. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hey, welcome. Today, we are going to address the questions that Ashley, a listener, sent me regarding technology, and it's a little bit of an experiment. It's not a usual episode. It's a little bit more edited, and we'll see how it goes. So we're talking about things like, is Facebook making us more lonely? Are we forgetting the art of conversation? And what happens when we don't have to talk to anyone because of self-checkouts and Amazon Prime? In other words, are we over-teched and under-talked? Today, we will not only cover answer to the answers to those questions, but you will hear about a guy speaking in an ancient language, horseless carriages, carriages and hikikomori, a condition affecting an, an estimated one million people in Japan. So here's a bit of research to get us started. I have focused on the work of Sherry Turkle, who is interested in conversations, as well as fellows by the name of Kraut Burke, who have a broader interest in how technology affects us. Some research shows that online communication is of lower quality compared to face-to-face or phone conversations. Regular surfing was shown to increase depressive symptoms. Lack of proper conversations have been shown to be harmful. And of all the people interviewed, 89% admitted to having taken out their phone and 82% said that the quality of conversation went south after that. Mobile phones lower the quality of topics people are willing to talk about and it lowers feelings of empathy. When we place a phone on a lunch table in front of us, everybody is subconsciously less willing to talk about meaningful and emotional things. Another finding is that Sherry Turco um, observed that people use technology to avoid conflict with their partners and loved ones. And the majority of the people we are connected to online are what is known as weak ties. Acquaintances, friends of friends, or people we have met only once or twice. And if keeping up with those people crowds out talking to our loved ones, then psychological well-being could suffer. Sounds kind of depressing, doesn't it? So if you wonder what this means and what could happen, we can take a look at Japan. Actually, some of our nightmares, you know, around isolation and being like hypertech, have already come true in Japan. In Japan, they have a word for it, and it's hikikomori. Here's Shun Kobayashi, a former sufferer, explaining what it is. Uh, stop going to school and uh, stay in my room, uh, playing the video game and uh, reading manga or cartoons. Now, this could be a very short episode if this were all that the researchers found. We could all just go home and avoid technology as much as possible. But to make things a bit more complicated, the internet and social media use has been shown to be beneficial as well. A lot of research indicates that people don't replace, but rather add communication with people they already have offline contact with. 
Talking to close friends and family members makes us happier. People with social anxieties benefit from using technology and social media to communicate if they can build themselves up to eventually face to to eventually face face to face communication. Messaging on Facebook led to higher social capital, which means that people were more likely to do things for each other and help each other out. And we see that things are not straightforward. Yes, technology and social media can be bad for you, but it can make you happier too. So we need to be able to discern a bit better. And scientific research is brilliant at that. Providing nuance. That's what science is really good at. So here are a few things we have to think about. Both on and offline communication is significantly influenced by things like how well we are feeling, how socially competent we are, how extroverted we are, and other things that are similar. If we feel crappy, it's more likely that we avoid social interactions in the real world and seek refuge in online environments. The technology is therefore not the reason why we feel bad, but just a symptom of it. There are all kinds of things that you can do on the internet. A lot of research does not differentiate between whether you are sending a note to your grandma or watching you porn. But it turns out that it matters in terms of our well-being what exactly it is that we do on the internet. Instant messaging, for example, increased depression, but email did not. Deep and more effortful communication had positive effects on well-being. Updating our own news feeds or reading other people's did not impact how happy we feel. So the one thing it seems that psychologists can agree on is that technology or social media becomes a sus- when it becomes a substitute for connection and conversation, it becomes problematic. Apart from that, it is not so, there is just not a lot of agreement yet on the effects. So how do we move forward? Like so often, it starts with becoming aware of our thoughts and beliefs about technology. So let's delve deeper into the forces that shape how we think about technology. I got myself some backup for that. Who I am? Well, my name is Jason Pfeiffer. I am the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. I, uh, you know, I mean, I am, I, I've just kind of always been a, a like a tech kid. I grew up, I, I'm 36 now, so I, I was in middle school when the kind of first internet was starting to roll out and I was on BBSs, which if people don't know, bulletin board services, they were the sort of like micro internets before there was a, a world wide web, so to speak. And I was, I was into ham radio as a kid. I had a ham radio license. So I, I've always just been really comfortable with technology. I, I, I consider myself a sort of tech native. Now, the reason I invited Jason on is not that he's the editor, but that he has a podcast called Pessimist Archive, and Pessimist Archive does one smart thing, among many. And one main smart thing is to go back and look at history. And that is precisely what we'll do. And so what's the value of going back and checking out history? Well, several things. We can gain confidence from it once we learn about similar challenges that humans have mastered, you know, we can be like, oh, right, well, maybe this can be solved. We can get inspiration and we also get perspective. And to illustrate this, let's travel back to a time when the first 
car was introduced. Back to Jason. Yeah, sure. Um, so what you're referencing is is that in the dawn in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the dawn of the horseless carriage, which is to say uh, the kind of earliest cars that people would call horseless carriages because they were so used to a, a horse-drawn carriage. Uh, uh, if, if a horse-drawn carriage... <laughs> If a horseless carriage was rolling down the street, people would yell at the driver, get a horse. Like that was a that was a common refrain of the late 1800s. Get a horse. Right. And um, isn't that fascinating? Right. You, you would think that people would immediately welcome the improvement of transportation technology that you would look at it and you would say, my God. We don't need a horse anymore. That horse is stinky. It's pooping everywhere. It's causing legitimate health crises in cities where like tons of horse poop was piling up in the streets. And instead, we have this new machine. But no, you know, no, that's that's not happening. People yelled, get a horse because it was unfamiliar and people trusted the horse. Now, what's interesting about this example is that this kind of reaction not only happened with the car. Rather, there is something bigger at play, and to unravel what that is, Jason has investigated, in a completely apolitical way, what time period people wanted to go back to when they chanted, make America great again. So again, if you hate politics, don't worry, this has nothing to do with politics. Donald Trump had this campaign slogan, make America great again. And make America great again, is a, it's a nostalgia narrative, right? It's saying there was a time before that was better and we need to return to that time. It's a good old days argument. And, and I started to think there has to be there has to be a recurrence here, right? This has to this has to be a thing that people have said over and over again because there is no time that was perfect. Uh, a nostalgia narrative is, is a false narrative. You can't find a time where everybody living in that time said, oh, we've figured out all the problems and there's nothing left to improve. But the question I had was, how far back does this go? Do we actually have records of this narrative going back I don't know, a thousand years, 2000 years. How far can we track this back? So I started emailing some historians and just asking them. And it was fascinating because everybody who had focused on a particular period of time could tell me when the people of that period thought the golden age was, you know, and, and so and so the sort of narrative formed in my head, which was, all right, let's start with now and ask when people who say make America great again, think the golden age was. Uh, which which is really the sort of the 1950s America. And then we'll go back, back to that and we'll uh, we'll ask a historian, when did those people think the golden age was? And it turns out it's kind of like the 1920s. So then we'll go back and we just keep doing that. And, and it turns out that if you do that, as I did, you can make it all the way back to Mesopotamia. You can make it all the way back to the history of writing. Now, the nostalgia narrative is obviously not the only force that shapes how we think think and react to technology. It's also by far not the only enduring thing that people have repeated over hundreds or thousands of years. Another popular narrative is the idea that the youth is somehow more corrupt. And we hear that all the time, right? The newest, uh, the, the generation that's teenagers now, they are the most narcissistic that ever lived on the planet. And it's important that we know this. 
while we might look at the youngsters posing on Instagram all day, it is important to acknowledge that even in time of like ancient Greeks, Plato and all of those guys, people were complaining about the youth. So history can really show us where we put old stories in new bottles. And it feels like we're reacting to something of our time. But actually, it seems like there are some narratives which have just existed, um, coexisted with human existence for as long as we can trace back. Um, and Jason has really done that nicely. So wait a minute, just because a fear has been voiced before, doesn't mean it's worthless, right? So what do we have to keep in mind? And when we evaluate technology or any issue, really, doesn't matter, we have to pay attention to the arguments and evidence that is presented. So there's still a lot about technology that we don't know how it impacts us. And one reason is that people confuse correlation with causation. So what does that mean? It means that, um, let me give you a classic example. The more ice creams are sold, the more people get shot. Now, with this example, you don't need to be Sherlock to know that eating ice cream does usually not cause murderous rage or that murderers probably don't like ice cream better than the rest of the population. So what is happening? Well, with this exaggerated example, we know that the ice cream is not influencing the murder and vice versa. More murders don't mean that people eat more ice cream. So there's a third factor at play, temperature, that influences not only how much ice cream is sold, but how many people are outside and therefore more likely to get into conflict with each other. And that's something that happens all the time when people report science. They pretend that one thing causes the other, but they just happen to have an association. And sometimes that association really does cause something, and sometimes it simply does not. And here we run into all kinds of problems. We take our own anecdotal experience and just assume that everybody experiences the same thing. So you'll hear Jason questioning one of my own anecdotes where I talk about the fact that I think people are a little bit less reliable now than they were 10 years ago. Are we really remembering perfectly that we had fewer cancellations eight years ago than we do now? Or have we just forgotten all the times that people canceled on us eight years ago, which is also entirely possible? Sometimes we also fall for myths, which were never true. I am telling you that before the smartphone, you were distracted by other things. You didn't have a, a, a bulletproof attention span before the smartphone. You're just forgetting that you were distracted by other things. But of course, we are not always wrong about the fact that something has changed. Other important point to just consider as we um, as we all observe the changes around us and whether you know real or perceived is is to remember that the 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 new technology is not, not the only thing that changed over the course of decades, right? So if you're going to compare what people were like 20 years ago to what they're like now and you say well you know the smartphone came along and now people 
whatever it is. People don't have uh, the same amount of time for me or they, they don't, you know, they're not showing up to appointments or whatever. You know, uh, it's, it's overly simplistic to say, well, the one thing that changed between the 1990s and now is that we have smartphones because that's just not true, right? A lot of things have changed. Economies have changed. Jobs have changed. The way that we work and live and function has changed. And all of that filters down into these little things that we observe. And so it is ridiculous to say that one little device could have caused whatever kind of sea change you might see to the degree that that sea change actually exists. And now we're getting to the core of the matter. We today value a different kind of mindset than we did 30 years ago, a different kind of skill set than we did 30 years ago. And that is, a, it's a legitimate change. And here's an example of it. 30 years ago, we valued retention of information. Right. You know, like somebody who could remember a ton of information was a very valuable person to have around. And now we value uh, finding and processing of information. That's somebody who, who, who is successful in today's business world is someone who can find and process information really quickly, someone who can search functionally, but search and, and, and balance and, and collect. And um, does that mean that we're worse off because we switched what we value. I, I don't think so. It just means that we're we're kind of adjusting to the tools and the technologies of the day, and we're we're going to be functioning different. But it, it doesn't mean that we aren't valuing certain skills and that there aren't certain abilities that are going to, to take you further. It's just that those things are going to change. And the only way that you can look at that and say this is bad is if you were the old way and you don't want to become the new way. The things we fear and the things we wish to avoid are at the root of these conflicts, which technology just seems to exacerbate, but that's not the same as technology causing the problem. Remember the Hikikomori? He seemed like a perfect example of how technology doomed us. But let's hear him talk about why he became a recluse in the first place. Uh, basically, well, I didn't like studying there, so, and uh, I was uh, underachieving at school, and uh, um, because it, it's regarded as so important in Japan to get into university, and after that get a, perhaps a very good job in a very good company, um, because I was losing the chance, and uh, I was kind of started losing hope, and I started being a hikikomori. Did you catch that? He lost hope. He felt inadequate. The technology was just a way for him to escape. It was not the reason he wanted to escape reality in the first place. And this is also what Sherry Turkle found, the researcher who addressed that we are losing our ability to have proper conversations. Instead of an accidental crowding out of conversations, people use technology to actively avoid things they don't like and this is important if technology were not around we would still seek for other ways to not be bored to not have conflicts or to avoid uncomfortable conversations we can lie to people we can pretend we don't see them or flat out refuse to tell them something uncomfortable or something meaningful we can deflect by using small talk 
So taking the technology away is not going to solve the problem. This is how Jason puts it. We are a lot less fragile than I think we think we are. And we often will identify some something that we think is going to cause irreparable harm to what we are as people. If we want our relationships and well-being to improve, we rather have to work on a mindset that lets us live in harmony with technology. It boils down to this. What we do and how we do it matters. The question is not if you use technology, but how you integrate it into your life so that it matters. Cell phones fill a craving by deluding us that into thinking that we don't have to deal with feelings of loneliness, boredom, slow progress, or uninteresting content. When we learn to become aware of those feelings, we can take measures which are far more effective than browsing social media feeds all day long. While we might not enjoy the feeling of boredom, it is vital for the brain to regroup and replenish itself. We rob ourselves if we don't give ourselves the chance to express emotions. And the same is true for other people, even if the conflict doesn't feel that great in the moment that we're having it. Apart from becoming aware, tackling and accepting certain human afflictions, we can also be a bit more proactive when it comes to technology. By logging things like time spent on the internet versus time spent with people in the real world, we can gain some insights that help us deepen our self-knowledge. Once we know how technology and social media affect us, we can take measures to strengthen the good and curb those things which make us less fulfilled. We can create zones where phones are not used, and this could include the kitchen or dining room or any place you see fit. When you talk to someone, for the love of God, put your phone somewhere else so that you can have proper conversations. Learn to feel comfortable with moments of boredom, conflict, and awkwardness in conversations by remaining in those situations and observing yourself and the other person. You can remind yourself that this is only a drop of time in your whole day. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this slightly different and pretty work intense episode. Uh, you can send me an email. And of course, you can reach out to Jason as well. You can find him at HeyPfeiffer um, on Twitter. And of course, please do yourself a favor and check out his fantastic podcast called Pessimists Archive. Here are a few reviews. And the first is from Lena CU <laughs> or Cool. I don't know. It says, great thoughts. The episode about politics is the best I've heard or read since Trump won. Such an intelligent, critical discourse about the political situation in the US. I enjoyed it a lot. It did not feel upsetting, but thoughtful and peaceful. This is the direction of speak and talk we need, speech and talk we need in hateful times like this. Thank you and greetings from Germany. Hi, Lena. Uh, thank you very much for your kind comment. And I'm very happy that many of you appreciate those episodes that are not strictly about science alone. They are, you know, they are something that I can add that's maybe not easily found elsewhere. I, I enjoy making them very much. So thanks, for Lena. And do you happen to remember the episode with Vanessa Zoltan about Harry Potter? Well, 
I would like to thank um, Introvert Entrepreneur for leaving a review on the podcast um, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and mentioning that you found them through me and this podcast. That is super helpful and very kind. And it, you know, it helps me get people uh, who might be harder to get as guests because if we can build a reputation of being a, an interesting and thought-provoking podcast, guests are more likely to appear. So if you want to do your share, mention when you find other podcasts through this one. And finally, I love this podcast so much by Andrei from the US, and this is back from December. Nothing has ever made such an immense difference in my life before like this podcast. Full of incredible advice and positive things waiting to be applied. Purely awesome. I am now aware of lots of things and feelings. Sorry, thoughts and feelings. And I feel better and stronger with with each day because of it. Much love. Hey, Andre. Wow, that's a big statement. And I'm very, very honored. And I hope you can translate your strengths and well-being into doing things that are really meaningful to you. So thanks for expressing how you feel. It really makes a difference for me and those reading the reviews, obviously, as well. Thank you so much, all of you, and talk to you soon. Whoops, almost forgot. Well, in case you want to know what it sounded like in ancient Mesopotamia, the place where they started out writing things down, Just have a listen at this guy. Anok Kukurash, Shar Kishati, Sharru Rabu, Sharru Danu, Shar Babilim, Shar Mat Shumeri Uakadi, Shar Kibrati Erbeti. Whoa, that was uber creepy. Unfortunately, unprocessed fears, traumas, and wounds can create quite a horror show inside of our brain. Like those demon singers we just heard, they can make us believe that no other reality exists. Quite a few of you have told me that the podcast has helped you with this. Brainwash is a 21-day program designed to freak out those creepy voices, disrupt, and let more easy rhythm and bird whistling into your head. Check it out at gum.co slash brainwash. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. 
We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.